0: Hello, this is Aaron, and welcome back to the podcast. I hope everyone had a good fall weekend. I have noticed that whenever liberals like something, conservatives seem to reflexively be against it. And actually, that might be wise in some cases, because if the left is proposing something, you are probably right to be suspicious of it. What are they hoping to gain out of that? How are they hoping to advance their agenda? But blanket rejection of entire areas blinds people to important realities. I think one of the examples is the environmental movement. We associate environmentalism with the left and climate change advocacy, and therefore conservatives tend to be very anti-environmental protection today. They've essentially rejected any stewardship of the environment, rejected conservation, whereas historically that would have not been the case. And so without saying that, yes, we need to do exactly what the left wants to do about climate change, maybe the idea that conservatives ought to have some thoughts on the environment and how to care for our environment is something that ought to be the case. I always like to use the example of the Republican health care plan as well, the fact that there isn't one. The left is always advancing these ideas about greater government involvement in healthcare, nationalized healthcare, Obamacare. And Republicans, conservatives just said, well, we don't want any of that. Well, what do you want? Nothing. Because re- intervention in the healthcare system has sort of become anathema to the right. And so, as a result, they've sort of missed the ball on important problems that we have in our society around our healthcare system, which is really, really screwed up. So, I wanted to return today to. A famous incident from 2012 in the presidential campaign in which President Obama made his famous, you didn't build that speech. He said something to this effect. Somebody helped to create this unbelievable American system that we have that allowed you to thrive. Somebody invested in roads and bridges. If you've got a business, you didn't build that. So Republicans were up in arms. Uh, And I said, look at him. He's saying you didn't build your business. Of course, the Obama campaign came back and said, no, he wasn't saying that. He was talking about roads and bridges. He was talking about the roads and bridges you didn't build or all the infrastructure that you were allowing you didn't build. I think the reality is in these sorts of political speeches, things aren't typically accidental. My guess is he wanted to play it both ways. He wanted to sort of get in a dig at the business owners while having plausible deniability about saying that he was talking about roads and bridges. And so conservatives very much reject this idea of you didn't build that. This is totally anathema to a conservative. Their thought is, yes, I did build that. If I'm a business owner, I built it. And if you are a business owner or if you look at anybody who's a business owner and who's built a successful business, I can tell you one thing. They worked their butt off on that. They worked hard. They very much did build it in an important way. Being able to be a builder or an entrepreneur is not a skill that everyone has, and the people who've been able to successfully pull it off deserve the rewards that they've had to a great extent. But there's another sense in which this is not true. Theologically, it's simply untrue that we built that. The psalm says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Uh, Even Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Deuteronomy 8, which I think is a great uh, chapter in the Bible, Moses is talking to the people. They're about to go into the promised land. They've been in the desert for 40 years, and the promised land is going to be flowing with milk and honey. And he's telling them about all the prosperity they're going to have there, but he gives them a warning. He says, beware, lest once you've become rich, and you you get all this gold and silver, and your herds have multiplied, you become proud and say, My hand and my efforts are what created this, but you should remember that it is God who's creating this wealth for you. He is the one who is enabling you to prosper in this land. And so if you forget that and you turn aside from Him, then you will be destroyed. There's something similar in Hosea. You know, Hosea was ordered to marry a prostitute uh, as a symbol of how the nation of Israel had been prostituting itself and been unfaithful to. God as they were sleeping around with all the other gods, so to speak. And then chapter 2, Hosea chapter 2, uh, there's a, a sort of a statement from God in which he, he says, yes, you went with Baal because, you know, Baal gave you the wool and Baal gave you the gold and the silver and all of this stuff. Uh, but what you didn't realize, it was actually I who was giving you that all along. I was the one who was giving you that. That you The stuff that you thought you were getting from Baal, you were actually getting from me. But now I'm going to take it away from you. Uh, to show you uh, who was really giving it to you. So we see this throughout throughout the Scripture, this idea that whatever we have should be given thankfully from God because it isn't purely a product of our own action, even though, as we see, for example, in the parable of the talents, we are actually called on to work hard and take action ourselves. We also can, can recapitulate this in a purely secular context, uh, one of Nassim Taleb's books, his first book was called Fooled by Randomness. Actually, I think he had a book about options trading. It was very technical. Forget that one. But his first inserto book is called Fooled by Randomness. And of the two Nassim Taleb books I say you should read, one is Fooled by Randomness. The other is anti-fragile. And he makes this point that we are constantly underestimating and blind to the role that random chance plays in success so he criticized the book the millionaire next door he says look this book the author of this book went and surveyed millionaires and found out the characteristics of these millionaires and said basically if you want to be a millionaire do what the millionaires did and he said that's an example of survivorship bias we're only seeing the people who were millionaires. We never saw and he never talked to all of the people who did the exact same things that those millionaires did, but did not become rich, may have even gone broke. So he sort of makes fun of this idea that, you know, well, millionaires are willing to embrace risk. Yeah, embracing risk is necessary to get rich. It's also necessary to go bankrupt. So the idea that you could simply learn how to get rich by studying rich people basically ignores the the sense in which Those people are only rich because random chance allowed them to get rich. They made a high-risk speculative bet in the stock market, and it paid off. It didn't mean they were genius. It just means they got lucky. And in many domains of our society, luck plays an incredible role in success in ways that we don't think about. We think it's all up to us, or we think it's all up to what these people did. And there may be a sense in which that's true, but there's also a sense in which the circumstances had to favor that. And again, one of the reasons I love Taleb is because once you translate some of this into essentially a theological speech, speak, it makes a lot of sense. What is randomness? Randomness is the sovereignty, the providence of God. Randomness is God's control over creation. We like to say, well... There's no God up there running things. You know, we're running things down here. I'm running things. So we tend to have a very high view of our own agency and what we can accomplish without realizing that even in the absence of, of a God, what would it be? It would just be random chance and black swans and things like that that are profoundly more influential over what happens than we'd like to think. So I, I want to give a couple of examples. I've alluded to these before, but I kind of want to re- recapitulate them. One is my career in urbanism. So I had started a blog about cities called The Urbanophile, The Lover of Cities. And it occurred to me that maybe I could professionalize this and turn it into a career because it sort of got very popular, very fast. People really loved what I had to say. I got my picture on the cover of the Chicago Tribune, uh, all that sort of stuff. and. Heads of government agencies were calling me and saying, hey, I'd like to talk with you. I'm like, well, maybe I could be a consultant to government agencies. And so I, I went off and tried to do this, and it turned out to be much more difficult than I anticipated. Frankly, if I if I knew then what I know now, I probably would never have done it. It's one of these things where, wow, if I had to go back, I'd never done that. But now that I did it, I'm actually glad I did it. So it's it's kind of one of those things. But ultimately... This probably would have ultimately been a failure, but for one thing, which is that Joel Kotkin, uh, some of you may know Joel, he wrote the book on the coming neo-feudalism, many other books, he's written a lot of books, Uh, saw that I had mentioned him in a little blog post that I wrote, probably because he had a Google alert set on it, and he reached out to me and he said, hey, would you like to write for me? And so I started contributing to his site, New Geography, which ultimately led to introductions, that landed me my job at the Manhattan Institute. If that Google alert about my having mentioned Joel Kotkin had gone into his spam folder, if he hadn't seen that or it somehow hadn't come up, there's a very good chance that I would have just gone back to technology and just written the whole urbanism thing off as a failure, that it would have been a completely different trajectory of my life from that one incident over which I had no control. It's very similar with my work here on sort of evangelicalism in the future and conservatism some of this bigger picture stuff that I do today. You know, I started this newsletter called The Masculinist back in I think it was 2016, maybe it was 2017. I don't remember exactly when I did it. it sometime in that time frame. And actually my goal originally was to start a newsletter on a different topic that was entirely devoted to making money. And I saw this need that was out there that people were not talking about the sort of things that I I had these insights on. And I'm like, well, maybe I should focus on mission instead of money. And so I sort of prayed about it. And what I said was, what I will do is I will run this newsletter for a year. I'll reach out to about 30-something people that I know I think will be interested in it. I'll ask them to sign up, which I did. I think I had 32, 33 initial people on the list. And I'm going to write this thing for a year. And if, through word of mouth, I get 500 subscribers at the end of the year, then I'll keep doing it. Otherwise, I'll shut it down. I've used this uh, example before, setting a gate, saying here's the number, and if I don't hit this number, I'm out. And so that way I avoid getting dragged in by the sunk cost fallacy. Uh, being able to quit when something isn't working is important. So pre-setting the criteria by which you will continue is very important because that helps you... That helps you discipline yourself there but anyhow I, I did it for a year it actually grew up to like 260 something or 280 something people but by the end of the year with like an issue or two left to go it's like it's not working so i'm just going to shut it down and just move on and maybe go back to my other newsletter idea so in fact i actually emailed all of my initial subscribers told them what was up said i'll send out my last couple issues which are not going to be about men i've been writing mostly about men's issues they're just going to be my two best ideas on any topic and so one of them was my original version of the three worlds of evangelicals and peace and the other one was interestingly a, a work on the sim Taleb. and it was over and actually i sort of just wrapped it up but i was preparing to move on and thinking about what the next thing was and then one day i'm walking down the street in new york uh, with my family heading down to get an ice cream and i get to the ice cream place we're standing in line so of course i pull out my phone like all of us do because i'm addicted and I've got, 25 emails. I'm like, what's going on? I I had 25 subscriptions to my newsletter. I'm like, what's going on there? So I delete, 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 delete. Eat some ice cream. We're done eating our ice cream getting ready to leave. I'll pull up my phone and get like, I got 15 more subscriptions. What's going on? So I ended up looking at, and what had happened was Rod Dreher had written a massive article all about this three worlds piece, talking about how important it was, talking about what was going on there. Now, how did Rod find that? How did he get in touch with that? Well, basically, one of my readers gave it to him when he was at Pepperdine. So he was giving a speech at Pepperdine. Somebody printed it off, I believe, handed him a copy of it at Pepperdine, said, you need to read this. He's like, whoa, and he just links to it there. If this person hadn't given that to Rod at Pepperdine, if, if Rod hadn't gone to Pepperdine, if he hadn't got it, literally, we wouldn't be talking today none of what I've done, none of what I've said would have happened. I would have gone and done something else. Now, it doesn't mean that doing something else would have been bad. Maybe I'd be better off today if I'd gone back to technology originally. I'd probably have more money. Uh, You know, things things could be much better in some respects for me. But in terms of the, the missions I was working on, they happened and were successful in part because of events over which I had absolutely no control. And so, yes, I work hard and I need to work hard, and I need to be focused on this, but the idea that, oh, this is just all because I'm so great, (laughs) you know, that's just not really true in any way. And this is true for anything, no matter what we have accomplished. We have accomplished it in part because of things that had nothing to do with us. And a couple of things that I think are very critical to enabling people to succeed, one is access to capital. I think we can understand that. If you have the greatest idea in the world for a business, but you don't have any money to start it, then that's a problem. Another one is networks. Networks are so important today. Networks are what make the world go around because you often need access to networks of high impact, high value people in order to you know get that opening get that door open that you need to have open so somehow someone in my network had Rod Rier in his network and made that connection there at some point somehow Google alerts or something got me connected to Joel Cocken and Joel Cocken had has all these connections all over the country with chambers of commerce with think tanks with all these people and now that I have a relationship with Joel Now that I have a relationship with with Rod, now that I have relationships with all these people that I know, I've got a network. I've got a network of people. And if I didn't have this network, then I would not be able to be successful. And so access to networks, of course, are in part part of what we do. We have to actually go meet people. We have to cultivate relationships. We have to do that, just like we have to go out and sell. But we have to recognize that this idea, I'll just create a network, You know unless providence favors you you will not create that network you will not create that network so i think it's this is why i do not resonate with most of the self-improvement literature uh online which is all about the self you can awaken the giant within you can impose your will on the world if you pay me andrew tate enough money to sign up for hustle university I'll show you how to get rich. And again, I'm all in favor of hustle. I'm all in favor of mindset. I'm all in favor of those things. But something is missing in them in that, underneath of that, this idea that we are actually dependent on God and his favor to accomplish anything whatsoever. And that if his favor is turned against you, that is a place that you cannot get out of no matter what. That's what we see in Hosea too. God's basically like, I, I've been giving you all this stuff. It's been really good, even though you've been hanging out with bail. Well, let me tell you, I'm about to turn off the tap. And when I turn off the tap, it's going to be a very different situation. So humility is really important. And here's where I have an actionable item. You know, when I went through my uh, guiding principles, I had five guiding principles in a podcast I laid out. One of them was pay it forward. And this is very important because if I had not had those networks, if I had not had that access... Then I would never have been able to get where I am today. So now that I actually have networks, now that I have actually you know built up to a certain level, not as high as I would like to be, or maybe as 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 I would need to be in order to accomplish what I want to accomplish, nevertheless, I need to be the network for other people because if other people had not been the network for me, I would never have gotten anyway. And that's where Pay it forward comes in. and all of us have resources. all of us have connections. We may not have capital. Capital is what a lot of us don't have, uh, but we all know some people. And so how can we be the connector, be the node in the network? Because the network is so critical today. As they say, it's not what you know, it's who you know. That's very important. And you know people. And so even if you're not, you know, someone that's connected to the most elite levels, you have some connections. And so being willing to make your network available to other people, Who need that is very important. And so I think that's just one is just a general posture of pay it forward is very important. And I also think this is something that is very applicable in the context of the racial justice movement. And this is another one where, again, we see a lot of conservatives dislike the BLM movement, and there are a lot of things to dislike about BLM. But the result is, okay, we know what you don't want to do. Well, what do you want to do? So we have these sort of big, huge, racial disparities in society, which we do. They objectively exist. So what is your explanation for that? And what are you going to do about that? So a lot of the alt-right people just want to chalk it up to genetics, claim it's genetic. I don't happen to agree with that. I mean, I think genes count for things uh, in the world. I'm not one of these people that's a blank Slater by any means, but it's just too facile to say, oh, let's just write everything off to genetics. And what are we going to do about it? So I don't know, profess to know all the, all the answers, but like, okay, what are we going to do about it? And, and how might you do something that would be productive and useful when it comes to racial justice? I think one of the things you could do is help be the network for under minorities. And you might think that in today's world where institutions seem to be beating every bush, looking for qualified minority applicants, that basically it's just shooting a layup if you happen to be black. And it's easy to look around and see people who really have been able to make it look that way. So there are people who have great connections, great skills, great positions, and they've essentially created structures into which essentially all this uh, money around DEI and all these things, it's just flowing. Money's just flowing like a gusher into what they're doing. And I, I know people who are exactly like that. But believe it or not, there are people who, frankly, are still underexposed and have less opportunity than you might expect. So there are there are a couple of black writers in Chicago, I'm not gonna name them because it's it's not about them in particular, who are just really, really good and insightful on cities and thinking. And you know, they've gotten some things, but these are people who should be writing for like the New York Times and things like that. And so I'm like, why aren't they doing that? Part of it is because they're independent thinkers. (laughs) And and that's part of the problem is when you don't go along to get along and you actually start telling the truth. All of a sudden, it doesn't matter, uh, you know, if you're black anymore. It's like, uh, sorry, if you're not just going to validate the regime, we're going to toss you over. Which, of course, we can see that every day in the political world, you know, where they get, you know, black Supreme Court justice gets cu- accused of being a white supremacist. It's, of course, it's ridiculous. That's what they do to you. And so these guys are not conservatives, even by any means. They're they're certainly liberals, but they, you know, they, they think for themselves. And so it's like, oh, that that, that kind of like hurts you. But I'm like, you know, through my acquisition of. Uh, networks, I have tried to like promote these guys out to different people, and some of it's worked. One of them I was able to get to write for The Guardian in the UK, which is really a top level publication. You know, I've recommended some of these people for very top level uh, writing. That doesn't mean that I've really made them famous or anything like that, but I feel that's like one of the things that I want to do. So I think if you're looking for something you can engage on, both as you know, what should I do with my good fortune. Uh, you know, a lot of us like to say, let's just be charitable to to, to people. Let's give to charities. Let's give to the church. I think that's very important. Uh, You know, if you have capital, of course, you can be an investor and uh, people who need capital. But I think this network thing is, we all have people that we have. Uh, If we did not have networks, we would probably not be where we are today. We would have been trapped uh, way down at lower levels in the hierarchy. So at whatever level we are, at whatever level we've risen to, we have this opportunity to pay it forward to other people by trying to be a network for them. And that doesn't mean you don't exercise good judgment and judiciousness about who you introduce to who, but we have to be willing to say, hey, I'm not just here for myself, I'm here for other people. And I think this is one where uh, it's very helpful in sort of a racial justice context where people may not have good networks, particularly since there isn't necessarily great um, interracial networks to begin with in a lot of cases. And so to the extent that you have them saying, how can I expose my network to other people, can be a very useful and productive way to say, how can we create opportunities uh, for minorities or for low income people of any race? You can think about it. But this is one of the things I just say is, this idea that we, we did, you didn't build that, right? That, oh, of course I built it, I did it myself. You did not do it yourself, okay? And if we don't keep that in mind, that but for, you know, the providential favor of God, we would have not have accomplished anything. And if that disappears tomorrow, all of our success will completely disappear along with it, just like it disappeared for Job, right? When, uh, you know, what happened in Job, it could happen to you. And so we need to keep that humble posture and keep remembering that. And then also say, because we have received these things, how can we then take what we have given and pay it forward, and be that blessing to others. That's just a few thoughts I'd like to throw out there, and I will talk to you all next week.